Welcome to Spotlight on Science. My name is Franklin Lewis. I am a writer with the Daily Emerald. I'm joined by my co-host. Becky Hogue. I'm also a writer for the Daily Emerald. And you are listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Today we are bringing you the latest and greatest in science news, particularly focusing on some local issues. Uh, We've got some environmental law issues coming up. There's a big conference coming up that Becky's going to talk about. We also, if you can take a look out your window, there's still snow on the ground. So we've got some snow-related topics to talk about today as well, along with some uh, kind of odds and ends of, in the science world that has gone down lately. But let's ta- start with the uh, Environmental Law Conference, because I know Becky's going to be writing some stuff for the Emerald about that, which you should always be checking out at thedailyemerald.com. Becky, do you want to tell us a little bit about what is happening with the Environmental Law Conference in Eugene? Yeah, so it's called the PIELC or PELC, and this is the 37th annual law conference, environmental law conference happening at University of Oregon. The theme this year is common ground, and uh, by the time that this is published, it will have already happened. This is a national conference, so it brings people from all around the nation to talk about environmental issues from protecting wolf habitat to talking about indigenous rights to discussing uh, marine conservation and also the Green New Deal, which we had talked about earlier about two podcasts ago and so this, or two episodes ago. So this is a big conference for anyone interested in environmental law. So if you missed it this time, check out my article that will give you the highlights and then also be sure to catch it next year. Definitely. And I don't want to give away too much of the article, but do you have any idea of who's going to be talking at the conference yet? Are you still working on those details? Um, so as of now, I'm still working on the details. But what I will say is that the first keynote speaker was a member of the Navajo tribe. Mm. He also represented indigenous rights for the U.S. government under President Obama, I believe. And so I think it's really cool that one that the first keynote speaker was an indigenous individual because I feel like that is generally underrepresented in these kind of topics and it's slowly becoming more and more represented. And he talked about how that's partially due to the fact that Native American people are raised thinking differently than westernized culture and that results in it being very difficult to create laws that both help indigenous people and also go under the current uh government system that right. we have in right place. and that, their culture too i mean they have uh I feel like they have a much more in tune or they're much more in tune and and connected with their environment too than maybe uh, Western culture is, and I think that you know, creating laws around Western culture and then trying to apply them to Native American culture. I mean, that's there's a lot of issues that go along with that. So I think that's really important that they have that speaker. Yeah. That being said, one, we are currently on Kalapuya land, so it's important to recognize the indigenous people who are connected to this land. And we are both white people. <laughs> true, yeah. And so we don't have any authority of speaking on the topic. And I just think it's very important to recognize both of those things. But yeah, so that was the first guest speaker. And the conference discusses a lot about the Green New Deal, because that's a very hard hitting topic right now with the presidential 2020 election coming up. And uh, it also discusses some of the other 
issues that have been going on, such as coal and oil um, decreasing in the current economy and uh, the pipeline issues and also just preservation of lands. Definitely check out my article when it comes out, and I will give you a lot more details on that. Fantastic. Yeah, looking forward to that article. That's going to be really comprehensive. I have some thoughts on the uh, the recent snow uh, uh, snow Mageddon. Can we call it snow Mageddon? Is that <laughs> are we doing that? <laughs> yes, let's uh, do it. As far as Oregon standards go, it's a snow Mageddon. The state had been in a drought, and basically, this snowstorm might be on the verge of wiping that entirely off the map. The snowpack rose. This is from the Statesman Journal. Uh, the snowpack rose from seventy percent of norm of what the normal amount is to 119% as of Thursday, according to uh, the Snow Survey Supervisor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's an absurd amount. I mean, this is a once in, I don't know, a decade, once in 20-year snowstorm for Oregon. Um, And I figured since we have so much snow on the ground, we'd kind of look at some interesting snow-related topics. And and, uh, one of them that I know people have heard for a while is that no two snowflakes are alike. I did a little bit of research on this because the snow juice is on my mind and I was figured like, well, you know, I've always heard this. This is actually true. In fact, in nature, it actually is true. You really rarely find snowflakes that are the same pattern or constructed in the same way because the way they're constructed is based on how the snowflake is falls from the atmosphere. Um, and each little kind of twist and turn and the wind blows it this way and um, the temperature changes that comes down, it's, they're all going to form differently. But in 2016, and this is not super current, but it's it's related to the snow, a scientist, a physicist, Kenneth Librecht, I probably butchered that name, um, at the California Institute of Technology, found a way to create identical snowflakes in a lab um, by basically setting up or creating snowflakes in a vacuum so that they fell exactly the same way from the atmosphere. So I thought that was kind of a cool, interesting, definitely go look this article up. It's the New York Times article. And you can see literally the snowflakes are growing side by side. It's a quite a fascinating process, and I had no idea so much went into snowflake production. Um, they're using actually quite like sophisticated stuff to do this, so just to make snowflakes. There's also a lot of issues with if you've had to ice down your driveway or your sidewalk because of all the snow and ice, and be conscious of how much salt you're putting on your driveway or sidewalk because there's some really big issues with how, with how much chloride dissolves from the salt and runs off into the water stream. Um, it's also really, it's it corrodes your car, which is a big issue, obviously. If you, you know, your car is corroded, it's not, you're not going to be driving around all over the place. So, and there's, there's been a lot of issues. Um, there's a good Smithsonian Magazine article that covers this from, I think it was, yeah, 2014, about how some of the salt can get in the water stream and actually kill organisms in the surrounding environment a lot of times the humans it doesn't show up in human environments but it shows up more in uh more threatened uh environmental habitats as is the case with a lot of these human um human waste it doesn't actually impact us it impacts something else mm-hmm. so just be conscious when you're using that ice salt out there and other than that just keep on with the snowball fights <laughs> <laughs> yes there have been a lot of great snowball fights my arm is still very sore from <laughs> doing a two-hour snowball fight with the uh, you are marching band. 
Well, I think you mentioned you also had you writing another story for about the TED Talk for the Daily Emerald. Yeah. So on March 9th, and we'll also have a link to the live streaming below on um, our description. But the TED Talk at University of Oregon is back. We haven't seen it since 2012. Mm. And now um, it has come back. The theme this year is Just Us, which can mean a lot of different things. I was talking with the director of the UO TED Talk this year. Uh, her name is Jennifer Espinola, and she uh, recently ran TED Talks in other universities before she came here. Um, and she says that the theme could either end in a period, an exclamation point, or a question mark. So it a lot of the TED Talks center around the idea either questioning whether or not we are alone or saying this is us, it's just us. Um, so some of the TED Talks uh, that we are going to hear are either from alumni or from community members of Eugene or from graduate students. And there's even an undergraduate senior in the architecture program who is discussing the possibilities revolving around 3D printing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of really great talks. There's um, some common themes include climate change and linguistics, linguistics, which is another big topic. So look for uh, my article detailing that and also um, the link below to being able to live stream the TED Talks because it's good to support community research, which is just as important as all other research exactly so, and yeah. i think it's important to clarify too i think is what you're saying is that it's not just one ted talk right it's a whole series and a lecture so mm -hmm. it's nine nine, nine total talks. so um and range seems like they range from a couple different i mean there's a general umbrella theme but they seem to range in a lot of different topics so that'll be really exciting to see how those work together um and definitely looking forward to that article as well did you have any more local topic ideas? Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the snow and climate change. Okay. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's just me being the environmental-minded individual, but a lot of people around me also have been like, this weather is weird. Does this have anything to do with climate change? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so as the earth is warming, climate is being adjusted. Uh, so jet streams that used to pull weather in a certain way are now switching up and causing the jet stream to be more um, erratic in different areas. We're not the only place that has experienced extreme weather. Like Southern California got hit by snow. Yeah. And that is just unfathomable. Yeah. Arizona is another place yeah. that got hit by yeah. a ton of snow. I think um, when I was talking to the uh, keynote speaker for the um, Pelk, he had just came from Arizona from one snow to the next. Yeah. And he was like I thought saying, I was getting out of this. Yeah. yeah, he was like, I thought I was getting out of this. And he said that there was something around like 37 inches of snow in his area in a 24-hour period. So if that is true, that is insane. But yeah, so the weather has been very, very off. So it last year, I think it hit more of just the East Coast. But this year, it's definitely affecting us too. And as the weather warms, enjoy the snow now because obviously that won't happen for yeah. 
too long, but the weather will continue to be more erratic, which means that we're going to get more extremes like this extreme cold swipe. Right, right. And I think the important thing to remember, yeah, with climate change is that it's it's kind of causing extremes. It's, it's about the extremes, right? It's not about like the baseline temperatures. So it's like people... I like. I think there are people have been like, well, it's like, oh, it's so cold. Like, where's where's global warming now, right? Yeah. It's like it's not about the actual the temperature of the Earth rising creates extreme temperatures. It's not like you're going to feel you're going to feel way hotter on the hottest days and way colder on the coldest days. It's not like everything's going to be hotter all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think you did a good job of explaining that. I found on Science News for Students, which is actually a great site too if you it's kind of if any students out there who are kind of getting into like science journalism for the first time want to kind of like kind of dip their toes in the water it's a good site to look at scientists found a bolivian frog species that actually quote unquote returned from the dead um they had believed this species to be extinct because of this one fungus that fungal disease that had wiped out the frog population but they actually searched after 10 years imagine searching 10 years in a bolivian mountain forest for one's frog species, and then finally finding a group of five. That's all they found after this. But it was enough to say that they're not extinct. Assuming um, there were male and female species. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not species. Yeah. <laughs> Organisms, yeah. Organisms, yeah. Um, and I think it's a this kind of story is indicative of a, maybe, a, I don't know if it's a misconception, but kind of maybe under or un- misunderstood kind of aspect of life where it's like, you know, like, oh, if a certain disease comes, it'll wipe out a species. And that's actually not totally true. Usually a disease, it'll never wipe out an entire species. It'll wipe out, you know, the worst will wipe out like 90% of a species. But like there always there will always be resistance somehow to a certain disease. And if that species is able to kind of grow from that, like the subpopulation that was resistant, um, they can actually kind of overcome the disease because the disease will actually die out once there's too few organisms to infect or the with the, pers- the parasite or virus that causes the disease will have some mutation that'll jump to a different species because, uh, well, if there's no frogs left to infect, we'll start infecting newts now instead. So I think that's kind of an interesting point to kind of bring up around this story. And I've been, you know, I've been taking a tropical diseases of Africa class, which is um, very interesting. Has taught me a lot about this stuff. It's definitely um, an interesting issue, and kind of, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, fear. There's the whole like Ebola scare a while back. Um, it's important to kind of like do your homework on some of this stuff because there there's a lot of variables at play. So saying something, you know, it's like oh, this disease is gonna like wipe us out or something. You have to be careful when you go into extremes. Frankie, um, this is statements. a little ironic because you said that you felt like the world was ending due to the measles outbreak. Well, that well, you know, <laughs> I'm about content, and and the measles measles was good, made for good content. So, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it does give us hope that like when there are scary situations of diseases and stuff, that species can be more resilient yeah, than we can rise think. above. Yeah, that does not mean that we should you know, say, oh, they could take care of right. themselves if we mess them up. Because humans have definitely killed off species before. Oh, yes. Definitely. We are very good yeah. at that. <laughs> at, at passenger pigeons. But um, do you have any other topics before I get into my shits and giggles of the day here? No, go for it. Okay. So I found on uh, Wired Science that there apparently is some meme going around on Twitter that there, that someone proposed that how many times would you have to slap a chicken 
to cook it. Did you? Okay, our podcast producer Ryan is is nodding in the corner. He's I seen this. I have no idea. Please share. Okay, so apparently there's a meme going around that's like, I mean, if you think about it, the the act of you slapping a chicken is causing friction and heating up the chicken. So someone asked, how many times would you have to slap a chicken to cook it? And someone, swear to God, uh, Rhett Elaine, I probably butchered the last name, but thank you so much for doing this. He did the math. He he spent, I don't know, 2,000 words here trying to figure out how many slaps it would take to cook a chicken. How hard would one slap have to be to cook a chicken? Or how many individual slaps would it take to cook a chicken? Like kind of an average like slap. And he calculated that it would take 49,000 slaps to cook your chicken. That sounds exhausting. It, then he that is assuming like you're slapping pretty much constantly. So obviously, mm. I don't think you could do this. But if you had a robot, you could set up a robot at like whoever's robotics lab wants to take this on. Please do this because I would love to see it. Set up a robot arm to just slap a chicken 49,000 times. That would be that would be incredible. So that's like my <laughs> that's my like shits and giggles of the day there. Yep, definitely made me giggle. That was that. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, I think we have to wrap up the podcast. So. Yeah, that was like a mix between like how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop yeah. sort of thing and why the chicken crossed the road. <laughs> uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, my name's Frank and Lewis. And I'm Becky Hogue. Join us next time. <laughs>